what people in a network need is not to agree on hardly anything, but to share their understanding of the system they're trying to shift and really notice that there are different places where people can intervene and where it can really start cracking open that system and making a difference. Welcome to Into Deep, the place for meaningful conversations about tackling tough problems. This week, we're joined by June Hawley, who is a longtime network weaver and author of the Network Weaving Handbook. She spent much of her career working with communities, oftentimes low-income communities, on complex issues, taking both a systems and a network lens informed by complexity principles. And in this conversation today, we touch on lots of different topics from the basics of How do you collect really good, compelling information about the people in your network and see how that network changes over time to the importance of experimentation and aligning funding to support that experimentation and also to thinking about the really important role of things like diversity in a network and how much that can be an unlock and truly an early leverage point for so much of the change that we're trying to create in the world. Let's dive in. Well, thank you, June. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us this week. Um, where I wanted to start out, you and I have been kind of connected for many years, and I think for the entire time I've known you, uh, network weaving um, and the network weaver handbook has been kind of co- a common term and so synonymous with your name, but would love to rewind and just have you share a little bit of your background kind of before that work started, what it was like to, to kind of invent that term um, and what led you to that focus for uh, such a good chunk of your career? Well, um, I've always been interested in helping people create a world that's good for all of us uh, ever since I was a little kid. And so, uh, you know, so I've been trying to learn as much as I could about how to do that. And I came across complexity science back in 1980 Uh, in some obscure book in the university library. And I was just captivated by this idea that things are more complex than maybe we often realize. And if we can understand that, you know, we can help systems shift and change. And, but nobody understood complexity. So I just started using the term network because really it captures a lot of that complexity in relationship in parts of systems and uh, started experimenting uh, with networks um, back in last last century. That sounds so long ago, but um, and really worked on network strategies uh, here in Appalachian, Ohio, where I live in Athens, Ohio, uh, with entrepreneurs, mostly low-income entrepreneurs, helping them network because we had so few resources. Uh, we had our, our main resource was people and what they knew, and so we spent a lot of time helping people uh, help each other out. Uh, as and most of these were food entrepreneurs, so making some kind of processed food or farmers. Um, and so that's where I really started uh, learning about networks. And, but it really wasn't until uh, early in, in 2000s 
that Baldus Krebs is kind of one of the grandfathers of uh, social network analysis. And I started writing a paper together to describe uh, uh, networks using the example of the Appalachian Center for Economic Networks down here. And uh, and during that process, we came up with the term network weaver and network weaving. And it just seemed like a, a wonderful term because, um, you know, the act of weaving is, is, is it's part, it's really a lot art <laughs> um, as, as well as science. And uh, it seemed to fit the kind of work that, that we were doing and interested in doing. So that's where the word, the term came from and not sure exactly uh, how we how that light bulb you know turned on but uh, certainly it's been picked up by a lot of people who have found it a useful in thinking about networks how to create more effective more transformational networks and for those people who are, who are maybe less familiar with the network weaving term can you maybe just give us your what's your the traditional kind of common word definition of what it means to be a network weaver. And I also wonder too, if you can kind of elaborate a bit on when you think about network weaving, network leadership, um, what's the comparison to kind of how that changes from more traditional leadership? Okay. So that's it. I mean, network leadership is the kind of leadership you need in networks to make them really work. And uh, the thing about network weaving as a kind of leadership is that Everyone is a network weaver and can be a better network weaver. It's not like leadership is something that just a few people uh, display. It's, it's something that all of us can, can manifest and it can make, and it really takes all of us working on a, a network to make it, it more effective. And so there's different parts and different aspects. And some people uh, play all these uh, different roles and, and some of them just focus on one. But the basic one is all about connecting, of course, you know, and reaching out to people and listening to them, finding out their interests, connecting them to other people, making sure the network is diverse and and, uh, and inclusive. And so bring, bringing, uh, making sure that people feel welcome in the network. Uh, so those are all parts of of the connecting piece of, of network weaving, but there's other parts because we've learned that um, networks are most effective when they're very experimental and when people take initiative and start projects with others uh, and then try to learn from those projects. And that's called self-organizing. And so there's a whole set of leadership around making, helping self-organized projects be very successful and helping people in those projects learn the skills they need to work together. Um, and so, you know, that's, that, that's another piece that not everybody plays, but is really important. And then there are people who, you know, most networks um, that I work with are intentional and they're focused on some area or part of a system or a system. And so people need to convene and not necessarily, you know, all in a room so much, but they need to think about themselves as a network, usually, you know, get some kind of North Star or uh, direction that they want to go and begin to understand the system they're trying to shift and, and shift their values, which we're finding like that is people learning how to be collaborative and 
open to uncertainty and and to dismantle racism and hierarchy. Those kinds of values and behaviors are critical. And <clears throat> somebody who's kind of convening the network can help people um, shift in these different ways. And then the other missing, the piece that most people in networks forget about is that you need to support um, the network and support it with a really good communication system. You need to make sure let learning and training are happening. Money needs to be restructured in different ways to support some of this self-organizing. Um, and so that's, that's a whole nother role is people who are kind of the big picture who are helping this support structure get started. So you see, there's a, there's lots of different roles and it takes lots of different people uh, playing, you know, different ones of these roles to make the uh, network really work. And can you say a little bit more about when we think about traditional leadership or more of the, the models of kind of hero as leader, mm-hmm. how, um, what are the shifts people need to make if they're now trying to show up in different ways and, and more effectively lead networks? Well, right. So it's all about, you know, helping other people be leaders instead of standing up in front of a room and trying to give people a vision or or telling people what to do. This kind of leadership is really bringing out just all the wonder in each of us by helping people, you know, uh, work together well. And, and they're often... Um, Lots of times we find, I remember one time I did a network map for a hospital in Billings, Montana, I think it was. And there was this yellow uh, um, dot on the map that represented, you know, somebody and, and, and was, had all kinds of arrows going into this person and arrows going up. This person was extremely well connected and, and important in the network and none of the uh, traditional leaders even knew who this person was when they saw the name. And so this person had been playing this network weaver role for, she was very young and had only been there for a year, but she, that whole time she'd been playing this network weaver role, connecting people, um, you know, helping them uh, get together and, and solve problems in the hospital. Um, And, you know, it was not recognized. So a lot of these network weavers are really below the radar. And, uh, you know, that's why it's really important to notice them so that you can support them. Once they realize this person was such a critical person, they were able to really support her, uh, you know, in her, in her leadership uh, role and help her help others be play that leader role as well. And one of the things, too, I think people would be surprised, especially if they come to kind of find out, out about you, June, more from a Network Weaver um, handbook lens, is, is kind of how much you have relied on some of the complexity thinking to inform the work, and then how much, too, you're thinking about systems and systems mapping and systems. Mm-hmm. So can you maybe just tell us a little bit more about kind of how that um, ends up being embedded in the network work and any experimentation mm-hmm. you're doing on kind of how to do that easier, better, faster? Yes. I mean, so, you know, complexity science is is just so important and so rich. And so, uh, you know, my understanding of networks is really, really has been impacted by by studying complexity, which just is, is about the way nature all around us is working and 
and these wonderful webs of relationships that are happening uh, where, you know, like the, 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 um, my cores, yeah, oh, I can't even pronounce it. Under, underneath trees, there's these huge communication systems and, and helping with spreading of resources. And I think that we, in our understanding of networks, we need to make sure that we are pulling on some of this kind of uh, understanding uh, to make the networks. It's not about handing out business cards. You know, it's about these complex relationships uh, among uh, people and their communities that's re- that it's really important. And so, you know, from the beginning, I've really encouraged people to try to understand the system they're trying to shift. And now, I, you know, I call these networks that, that Baldus and I identified years ago uh, as system shifting networks. Well, you know, they're, they're networks where there's just so much experimentation, engagement uh, going on that you are able to shift systems. And I just love the idea that uh, what people in a network need is not to agree on hardly anything, but to share their understanding of the system they're trying to shift and really notice that there are different places where people can intervene in that system, what's called leverage points, and where it can really start cracking open that system and making a difference. And then they can actually form their work, organize their work around those, those leverage points. And, and I found that uh, in many networks really helps people focus and helps uh, networks stop being just this nebulous kind of relationship thing and be really a vehicle for very, very powerful transformational action. And with something like leverage points, can you give us an example of kind of how one of the networks you've been involved with has gone about trying to identify what those leverage points are? Uh, Yeah. So um, uh, right now, just very recently, I'm working with uh, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, network information on well-being and equity. Um, and what we've done, said several rounds of this kind of activity where, you know, we just ask people, what do you think the leverage points are? Where, where could you put your energy with others and really make a difference? Where are there opportunities that are starting to appear? Something's shifted, something's changed. And if you know, if you just go in into that space, you can really um, make a difference. So we simply ask people to, you know, put where they think the leverage points are. They put those uh, post-it notes up on the wall and we cluster them into different leverage points. And so you don't need a huge system map. Of course, that's really a great thing to have uh, to be able to identify some, you know, get people thinking in terms of leverage points and that there are some places where if you put your energy, you're going to get more bang for your buck than others. And so um, we are starting. So this group that met actually yesterday is not, has now formed uh, uh, groups around these leverage points that are going to become action groups and where they're going to be uh, experimenting you know, around that leverage point to see it, well, is this really a leverage point? If we do something here, is it making a difference? So an important thing about leverage points is 
that, you know, you pro people need to realize you have to change those leverage points. <laughs> you know, you have to be constantly re revising them and seeing if they really are leverage points, um, you know, because that's what's going to, um, you know, that's going to make a difference. If you don't get some networks I've seen kind of get stuck in their leverage points, they come up with some and then year after year, they're working with the same leverage points. These, you know, I think they need to be pretty, uh, refreshed quite frequently to really make them uh, valuable. And wondering too, if you can if you can share a little bit about knowing kind of okay, people take the leverage point identification, then hopefully lead into kind of experimentation within action groups. But can you just talk a little bit more um, about what in your mind kind of good experimentation looks like within a network and and kind of mm -hmm. what it like how much are we yeah. taking what does those look like and also to what what's needed you had mentioned earlier about kind of different funding sources are needed but so what both from a process point of view but also from a funding point of view is needed to be able to have those experiments wow. really work well Yes. Yeah, so we've been finding the best model is to set up an innovation pool or activation pool, whatever you call it. And it's better if it comes from several sources or numbers of foundations, maybe some individuals. And it doesn't need to be very large. But the thing is, if you can fund 10, 10 different collaborative projects, and those, those, and they may just be small amounts. It might even just be $1,500 or whatever, just enough to get a set of people together with a facilitator and, um, and to, to get a prototype or a plan. And so, but what we found is the key is to take those 10 collaborative projects and put them in a community of practice uh, that meets maybe monthly. And let's say the, the, the funding was just for three months or six months. Every month you have these groups meet together and they steal ideas from each other. They learn from each other. They uh, do p this thing called peer assist where they're helping each other with challenges. And in the end, and, and then this fabulous uh, opportunity at the end for them to actually video what they've learned, which can be shared with a much larger uh, audience. So you want to make sure they are learning as much as they can. So their next step is going to be better. But you also want to um, make sure that the learning is shared with the larger network. So everybody uh, benefits from just 10 collaborative projects uh, meeting together. And, you know, I just got to say that I'm learning that learning is so important. And so you that you've got to spend much more time. Uh, it's not just enough at the end of a meeting to say, what went well? What could we do better? Uh, you you want people to really have a good chunk of time at, at, you know, somewhere during a meeting where they're reflecting on what they're doing and they're noticing uh, these things I call patterns of success that they can apply in other settings. So um, really key. But having the money restructured, it also helps foundations be, be peers in the network if they put their money in a pool. And often the funds are, uh, the decisions about the projects are very participative. I know the leadership learning community has been a, a groundbreaker in getting as many as maybe 200 people involved in sort of different aspects of kind of uh, 
uh, going through the proposals and and helping decide which ones are going to get the funding. Um, and and so, you know, in a way, the process is also a way to get more people engaged uh, in the network. Just a really important idea, I, I, I believe. And what I want to see are next stage funds. I think we're just starting some networks to do that. So you can take the learning from that first set, that first community of practice, and use it to fund much larger projects that are going to have a lot more impact. That's a great transition to into the next question, which is, so as you're thinking about whether it's moving into this next stage of funding or kind of conversations you've had with, with larger foundations or even network members themselves mm-hmm. about kind of making sense of um, like how, how is a network doing? How do we think about evaluating kind of changes in the network over time or the network's impact? Can you just walk through a little bit, like what's, what's that conversation look like or what's the recommendation that you give to funders or kind of community members themselves about kind of how to think whether or not the network is on the right track to have the the impact they are hoping for? Yeah, so I think in addition to some of the traditional kind of impact measures, uh, which, you know, it, it, it takes a while for a network to really start impacting those kinds of measures. So you need some indicators along the way, and I call them like network indicators, that are really helping you see if the network is going in the right direction in the direction where it's very likely to create substantial uh, impact. And so um, I've worked on creating some simple assessment tools that are not meant so much to evaluate as to how people learn. So uh, for example, um, you know, helping people see is their network, you know, is, is it, in connectivity happening? Are people getting connected to new people and things like that? You want to ask some questions about the capacity for self-organizing. Are there lots of collaboratives happening? Um, you know, and, and are people learning from those? Um, you know, is the network, are, are values shifting? Um, what kind of communication system do you have? It seems like feeding that information, you know, having surveying you know, people in the network about that and then feeding that information back usually in graphical form so they can say, oh, wow, you know, we we really didn't score well on this values thing. Maybe we need to, you know, get a group of people to start working on that and thinking about how we can uh, put more emphasis on shifting our our everybody in our network to more network values. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's, it's finding, you know, something that helps you see your strengths and that you're moving in the right direction. And I think that's why, you know, doing this kind of assessment needs to be, you know, a regular kind of thing. And, uh, but then people say, people deciding themselves where the challenges are from the data and, and what they, they want to work on, what they feel like they're willing to help the network uh, shift even more on. So it's, it's kind of a different approach than your traditional evaluation. But I think so much more powerful because, you know, people are taking responsibility for the health and effectiveness of the network. And they're deciding on things to do to, to make it even more transformational. And on that, that data collection front, I wonder, can you maybe just um, go really practical um, with me for a bit? And when mm-hmm. you think about 
collecting data kind of from network members, either about themselves or about their relationships? What are some of the, like, the more powerful questions you traditionally ask? And how do you think about even kind of monitoring changes in relationships um, within a network over time? Yes, well, I mean, I love the idea. I, I mean, I use very simple like Google form surveys that then give you graphs afterwards. So data collection can uh, often, instead of having big annual surveys that then the, nobody sees the results of, I love the idea of little small surveys little small surveys that a collaborative can take that, um, you know, that can be taken in many different places and yet aggregated. So you can both see how you're, you're, because people really change in small groups. I've seen this over and over. It's like, you know, it's hard for us to change, you know, by ourselves. I mean, there's all these type A people who can have their Fitbits and, and use that to change. But lots of times it's, it's in a group setting where everybody's saying, okay, we're going to really share leadership in this session. And, and, and so they do. Um, and, and then they can take a survey that helps them see, yeah, wow, we've really shifted on this. Uh, so I like the idea of, of lots of smaller surveys, more frequent taken more frequently but aggregated so that you can get a sense of the uh of the overall network uh but of course mapping and using you know something like kumu is is also a really powerful way of of looking at the you know getting a picture because you really have to change the way people's brain works and there's nothing like a network map to really oh i never thought about how, how I need to think about relationships and who's, you know, when I invite people to a meeting. And a, a network map really starts helping people be, think more relationally and use that in their, their activities. And so, you know, I just, I love the idea of maps. I don't think we have the metrics that we really need yet. Um, and, uh that, that really are not just about individuals or, how connect, because we know, you know, a network can get too connected. Um, And uh, so, you know, I would really would love to see more sophisticated uh, metrics for, for networks that really uh, help us identify, say a core periphery, which we call the system shifting network. And that can handle things like looking at the diversity at the same time you're looking at, at the connectivity and, um, those kinds of things. So, you know, I, I do love the idea of networks, both as a, a way to shift people's minds and give them some data about, you know, the nature of their connectivity in a way that they, they can make concrete changes. But lots of people just look at a map and they say, oh, here's two people I know, and they're not connected. What can I do to help them get connected? I think they'd really love knowing each other. Um, and well, so, That's you know, a great that, point, too. And I think that's a question yeah. we get from a lot of folks, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think people understand conceptually the idea of how, hey, if I have network data, I can see how it's changed over time. It gets bigger, mm-hmm. it gets more connected, things I'm paying attention to. But I think some of the questions for people are, hey, what's the, like, the day-to-day value I get out of having this information about a network. And I know you and I have talked a fair bit around things like, hey, it's really important to track interest or it's really important to track 
kind of the things people are bringing to a network or the things they may need help with. Can you, can you just talk a little bit more about kind of that, like what, what type of information you're collecting there and, and how you've seen that used powerfully? Yeah, I think that's the most powerful. If you collect interests and then you show people the map of here's all the people who are interested in this topic. And then I always ask the question, um, how willing would you be to convene a group on this topic and, and the people who are very willing, you know, if you have people very willing to convene and you have uh, uh, people, some of whom are connected, but a lot of them aren't, that's just a perfect um, strategic area to focus and say, hey, let's find a way to bring these folks together. Once they start talking to each other, they will have a relationship that will change the nature of the, the, the larger map um, and help us really get some things done. So I love asking the interest question, but you need to do it, you know, kind of frequently and you need to be ready to act on it, you know, after that mapping. The other thing is that I've been seeing uh, several networks do is that they ask, uh, well, what do you have a skill in that you'd be willing to share uh, with others? And then they ask, well, what is it that you'd like to learn uh, that um, learn from others. And so in some networks, we've done maps of those. So you can see the people who, you know, know something and people who want to learn. And again, you can either uh, pair up broker uh, connections between, you know, somebody who has that skill and somebody who wants it, or you can convene a group. Uh, that's all interested in either learning or or uh, uh, teaching that kind of, of skill. So those are two really powerful ways. Geography is another great one uh, we're increasingly using, like uh, to uh, have what you know help develop what we call geographic hotspots. Uh, because once you get to a certain density of people, um, so you know we ask you know find people who live in the Bay Area, for example, or another group uh, was convened around the Twin Cities in Minnesota from data from a, a map. That's great. That's super helpful. And June, the other thing I think people struggle with too is kind of how many different ways you can go with the relationship question that people use to ask about kind of how people are connected. I've seen anything from kind of who do you collaborate with most frequently to who have you grabbed coffee with in the last six weeks? Do you have a, a favorite that you end up using with the networks you work with most often? Well, you know, I like the collaborate question, though people do interpret it real differently. But I feel like if people are collaborating, that means they're not just talking to each other, but they're actually working together. That is a really sign uh, of, um, you know, once you've collaborated, you tend to know a person um, and you probably built some trust there. And so it's like um, a collaboration is a, it's like money in the bank, you know, for, for the future. It's like that relationship then has, has actually done something together and in the past, and it's really likely uh, to do something together, you know, in some shape or form in, in the future. And so, so that's always the question that I uh, 
you know, that, that I've used that I really find. Uh, the other one that sometimes is really interesting is who would you like to collaborate with in the future? Because, <clears throat> you know, and I've never had a network that's actually had the capacity to really take the answers to that question, but you can, a couple things you can find from that. You can, you can actually look at that, uh, do the metrics on that and find people who, um, you know, are mentioned on that, but haven't been mentioned in the collaborate one. And, you know, I call those emerging leaders. And there are people that you want to, if lots of people are saying, hey, I want to collaborate with this person in the future. They're like an attractor. You could, if you uh, set up some kind of a learning pop-up or whatever with them, people are going to come to it because they want to work with that person. So um, that's some uh, another um, question, relationship question that I found quite useful. I wanted to switch gears for a bit because I know you and I have also had a number of questions on the kind of emergence of collective impact and the popularity um, associated with it and kind of how much people have flocked to that as an approach and both the, the benefits um, in that and what it's done to maybe increase funding to things like backbone organizations. But I know um, for you, you've seen a lot of, of, of kind of downsides and potential pitfalls. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit more about that um, and some of the things that people may want to pay attention to um, if they're diving kind of headfirst into a collective impact approach? Yes, well, I just, uh, like a, a week or so ago, uh, wrote a nice little chart up that compares collective impact and network approaches. And really, if you add some of the network elements to collective impact, you can really make it much more powerful. And so I, I suggest people go to the Network Weaver um, uh, dot com site in the resources section. There is this nice free chart on... Uh, uh, comparing those two. But just to put it uh, briefly, is like that when you're doing collective impact, you lots of collective impact groups have stumbled because they get, uh, they get a few really high-powered uh, organizations together and they plan and figure out what they're going to do. And they can, in fact, make have a big impact in a short period of time. But long term, if you really want a transformation, if you really want to turn a community around, you're going to need lots of people and you've got to have people impacted by the problems and issues of that community involved. And the best way to do that is to really focus on creating a network and this idea of supporting self-organizing projects and helping people learn from that and that, that are involving people in communities and not just big organizational players. And so that's probably one of the main, main ways that I think, and some, some of the best collective impact projects, you know, do work in that direction, but I think uh, it's not a hard thing to do, uh, but it is a, a different direction. And, you know, your, your money really needs to be structured differently and not just go to a backbone, a couple large organizations, but be in these pools of funds that are accessible uh, by, you know, ordinary people who are living with poverty and racism and some of those uh, big kinds of, of issues. Um, so that I'm trying to think, you know, there there's certainly... Uh, the other way is to really not try to agree too much. I, I know that um, uh, collective impact encourages people to have the same 
uh, perception of the problem. I, I think that it's, it's more important for everybody to understand the system that they're trying to shift and they might have different perceptions. That's often difference is really good. And, but they commit to doing experiments to really find out what is the reality, not just what's in your head and what you think is, um, of underlying and holding these set of problems in place. So that's another area that um, I think the network approach encourages, you know, uh, a, a more systemic approach to, to problems. One of the other areas I think we see people um, either struggling or at least trying to become way more intentional around is thinking about diversity and equity and inclusion in some of their network efforts. And so can you just yeah. maybe share a little bit about um, how you've seen that done well and just any pitfalls to potentially mm-hmm. avoid um, as people lean into making that a more um, intentional focus. Right. And, you know, I come to believe that it's like, it's the highest priority because when a group actually tackles hierarchy and racism and starts dismantling racism, all kinds of possibilities, new possibilities open. I've seen it over and over again now. Uh, the way that they think about the problems changes, the way they think changes. And, uh, you know, it may be there's discomfort, there's, uh, uh, you know, so- somewhat, but groups that I found that have actually committed and, you know, whether they bring somebody in to help them deal with this, um, you know, I think it's, 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 not always that easy to tackle on your own uh, because uh, there's so many ways you can get tripped up on it, but the benefits are just so incredibly great besides being the right, you know, the right thing to do and, and far overdue for us to deal with all the damage that, that racism has caused over, over the years. um, It also just, frees up thinking, it helps us come up with better solutions. I believe it's the only way that we can really, um, you know, uh, make a difference on some of these huge uh, problems that, that, uh, you know, are plaguing our country right now. So really encourage people to do that. And it's really with the, what you're trying to do, what it does is it's like the leverage point into shifting all of those values about innovation, experimentation, um, you know, and learning and things like that. If you work directly on racism, lots of those other things will start falling into place. And so, um, you know, I I have seen groups where, um, you know, they, they, uh, they begin to recognize that they are mostly a white organization and they begin to reach out. And then there's some discomfort as they, you know, work on some of the kind of hidden racism that they haven't seen before. And then, then trust is built and there's an explosion of new uh, creative possibilities open up in the community. So I, you know, I'm just a big fan of, of working early on that and, and really committing the resources um, you, you know, to working directly, you know, on dismantling uh, racism um, and, and because it, the benefits are so great to everybody. Well, that's a, a powerful note to end on, June. And thank you so much for the time today. I wonder if there's kind of any any parting thoughts or wisdom or things that uh, you want to make sure 
people are, are paying attention to as they're embarking on their, their network or system shifting efforts? Mm-hmm. What, what might those be for you? <laughs> well, I do. I mean, there's, there's a really nice community of people who are working on this. You don't have to be alone. And so encouraging people to go to the networkweaver.com site. There's like about 24 free resources. There are blog posts by people all over the world who are working in these kind of system shifting networks. We have a Facebook network weaving page. I, that you can find where you can get any questions you have. There's like almost about 2,000 people on that. And uh, again, from all over the world. And, um, you know, you can get wonderful uh, help with any questions that you have. So just remembering that you need a community for learning this stuff. Um, you know, it's not, it's, And there are many people out there now who are working on these kinds of transformational networks who would be love to share and take time uh, to learn together how to make these kinds of networks, you know, really work for our world. And a quick plug maybe for the Network Weaver handbook, when would you say or who would you say should be um, should be purchasing that resource? Okay. I mean, yes, it's just, you know, it's, it's a few years old, but it's still about, about the only thing out there and you can't actually get it on Amazon right now. It's actually somehow it got kicked off our, our network weaver site, but it should be up there in a day or two. Um, and, and you can get a PDF copy uh, that's really quite reasonable, only $20 now um, when that comes back up on our site. And uh, I just, you know, I just, um, it's 30 years of experience about networks just poured out on the page. The handbook's 400 pages long, but lots of stories in it uh, and lots of worksheets and activities. Uh, so really encourage people to, um, to take a look at it. And it, it, it's a resource that uh, won't, won't grow old. Uh, you'll come back to it over and over again as you uh, get a deeper understanding uh, of networks and network weaving. Wonderful. Well, thank you, June. Uh, especially appreciative too, to everything you've done to help kind of guide and inform our direction for Kumu over the years and kind of how much wisdom and how much of a values orientation you've always taken to the work. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be in conversation with you as always. Oh, it was so fun to do this. Thank you for letting me, letting me do this, Jeff.